Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The title of our message is the second part in a series called Headship, Headship and the Roles of Men and Women. We're looking specifically at verses 4 through 6 this morning of 1 Corinthians 11, but I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 11 beginning in verse 2 all the way down to verse 16, which is the section that we're looking at here. The overall section. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 says this. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraced for a woman to have her if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord... Neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Let's pray. Again, Father, we call upon your name. We're coming to your word. We desire so much to grow. We're so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us. We desire that your name be honored and magnified and that you would help us to understand this passage so that we might apply it to our own lives and live lives that are God-glorifying lives, live lives that are worthy of the calling by which we have been called. So we commit this time to you and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were here last week, we said that this overall section, verses 2 through 16, can be divided up into four different sections, four different desires that Paul had for the church. The first desire was that they know about headship, verses 2 and 3. The second desire is that they apply headship. The third desire is that they understand headship. And the fourth desire is that they practice headship. And last week, we dove right into knowing about headship. And the verse that we really focused on, which is the theme for this section, a verse which if you don't really understand it, it's going to be hard for you to understand the rest of the passage, is verse 3, which says, but I want you to know or to understand that Christ is the head of every man, 
And the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And Paul, I noted last week, Paul teaches about authority here. We're not just saying that he is the source of it or the origin. We're talking about authority, rule. And it applies not just to husband and wives. Male headship not only applies in marriage, but also in the church and also in society generally. God has designed as part of his creation that all women in general are to be submissive to male headship. And I made that statement last week, and it raised a couple of eyebrows. And there were a few questions. And we had one at the end from someone over in this area, which was saying, well, if God's design for women is that all women are to submit to male headship, How does that reflect it in relationships that a woman, whether she's single or married, has with other men in the church? That was kind of the gist of the question, right? Um, Another way of saying it might say, uh, someone else asked me a similar question afterwards, and they said, well, how does this affect my relationship with men in society in general? What does the application of male headship look like? In society, if I'm going to make a statement saying that all society is designed and affected by male headship, how do we apply that? I mean, does that really mean that I could be walking down the street and a man could say, "Pick up that piece of trash," and I have to do it? Is that is that what we're talking about here? No, that's not what we're talking about here, although it's not a bad thing to pick up trash anyways. I mean, I'm not opposed to that. I would do it, and I think anybody, you know, I think it's a good thing for Christians to do. Um, But the short answer and the easy answer for Bible teachers, when people say, well, what does this look like, this male headship, is for us to say, well, if you lived in the first century and if you lived in Corinth, male headship would be recognized by others if you were a woman and you covered your head while praying or prophesying. And it would be supported by men who, when they prayed and prophesied, did not cover their head. And there's your answer. Which still leaves us with a few questions, because I'm not living in the first century and I'm not in Corinth. So what about us today? How does this apply today. And I want to get to that this morning. In fact, I would like to get to the point where by the end of this lesson, you are coming up with those answers yourself. You're recognizing how to answer that question yourself. And in order to do that, today, as we look through four through six, I really have four goals for this morning. And the first goal is to look at the biblical history of male headship. I think we didn't get there last week, and I think it's still foundational, applies to what this passage is about, but I want to look at the biblical foundation of male headship. Secondly, I want to look at a definition for headship. I want to define it, because if we, don't, we can't define it, how are we ever going to apply it? Thirdly, I want to walk through this passage, verses 4 through 6, and expose the passage. We're going to look at the, the passage um, 
a little bit more carefully than just reading through it. And then I want to stop and say, what are the implications of it? What are the modern-day implications? So our goals today really are historical examination, definition of the term, exposition of the passage, and implication for us. Examination, definition, exposition, implication. And we're going to begin with a historical examination of male headship. So I'd like to take your Bibles and turn back with me. Keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians 11. But go back to Genesis chapter 1, because we're going to start and look at the beginning and the roles of men and women and how they related to God's design. And can we see even a hint of headship in the very first chapter of the Bible, the account of creation? Genesis chapter 1, let's look at verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, what jumps out from that verse are the pronouns, right? God, singular, said, let us, plural, because God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right there in Genesis 1, he refers to himself with plurality, yet he is one. The Lord our God is one, yet he is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Father is, is co-equal and, and co-eternal with the Son and the Son with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit with the Father and the Holy Spirit with the Son. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that, This is what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches a triune God who is one. But for our concerns, there's something else going on here because he says we have a proper noun, a a, a collective noun, let us make man in our image. Now, if I use the term man, Adam in the Greek, Adam in in the Hebrew, What do you think of? But immediately, the pronoun here describing man in verse 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them. Who are them? It's a hint at it already. Man is male and female. Mankind. Notice it doesn't say, let us make her, or let us make woman in our image, or let us make man and woman. It uses a masculine noun collectively to refer to both men and women, already hinting that someone here is identified and is the identifier of both genders. Um, Gets a little clearer in, in Genesis 2. We find out more as to why this would be. Genesis 2, let's take a look at verses 15 through 23. Genesis 2, verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden. We're talking about Adam, singular here, before Eve is created. Okay? Then God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not Eat, for in that day you eat, it will sh- you eat it, you eat from it, you will surely die. You singular, you man. 
Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of, out, one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So I, I want to look at the order of creation here, the order given to us in Genesis 2, 15 through 26, because this order helps us really understand that sometimes we tell the story, we don't really tell it in this order. But I think the order of events, because in the New Testament, oftentimes when you're dealing with men's and women, male and female issues, um, they refer back to the order of creation. So let's just look at the order here. First of all, we have God creating the man first uh, before the woman. God had given the man a job in verse 15, which is to cultivate and keep the garden, a garden that was a perfect garden, a joy for him to cultivate and keep. Uh, God gave the man a warning not to eat from a certain tree. Verse 16, God said that he would make a helper for the man, verse 18. Sometimes people get really, ladies get really bent out of shape. A helper, that's all I am, a helper I think we shouldn't get caught up in that term, okay? There's nothing in this passage about superiority of men or inferiority of women. There's nothing. In fact, equality in certain attributes is, it just, just is, is evident in the creation account. They are suitable for one another. Um, and we know that this is nothing about inequality or superiority and... and, uh, and because, uh, superiority and inferiority, because we've already seen in chapter 11, verse 3 of um, 1 Corinthians 11, where it says the man is the head of a woman, we already noted that God is the head of Christ, and so there is no superiority or inferiority. But that term helper also is found in the New Testament, or help, the same root word, is found in the Old Testament, um, and we, it, it describes God. Psalm chapter 70, David wrote... In that five-verse psalm, he said in Psalm 70, verse 5, But I am afflicted and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. Now, David certainly wasn't saying that God, even though he was a help to him, a deliverer, that God was below him, that somehow he was greater than God. So we're not talking about superiority and inferiority. The word helper doesn't necessarily imply that. But God created the man, gave the man a job, gave the man a warning, verse 16, said he would make a helper for the man, verse 18, then he doesn't make a helper for the man. Verse 19, God formed all the animals out of the ground. So you can imagine Adam sitting there thinking, all right, he's going to make me a helper. And then I've got all these animals coming by. Could, could one of these be the helper? And then he starts naming them. God brings them to him to name them. And so you can imagine, okay, this one, lion, right? Oh, and there's a lioness, right? 
Well, done. Go, go. Be gone. I got it. Okay. Here's a deer. Okay. Male deer is a buck. All right. Female deer. Doe. Very good. You guys are just like Adam. Perfect. <laughs> hey, look. Here's a rooster. And here's a hen. Remember? Oh, wow. This is interesting. I'll call this one a gander. And this one a goose, not gander. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. It's, it's a, it's a male-female thing there, right? Okay, I, we're going we're gonna to be done with the what of this. But can you imagine him just, okay, I'm naming, naming, naming. And like, wait a minute. There is no one suitable for me. And then he sees woman. Uh, God puts, puts him into a sleep. God made a woman from the rib of man. Man is overjoyed. And all of a sudden, we have the very first words ever recorded that any human ever spoke. Verse 23, it's a poem. And this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So he is overjoyed with woman. It's only after woman has been created that mankind is called very good, right? It was good. This is good. Second day, third day is good. But it's not good. Not good for man to be alone. Woman's created very good, right? Creation is complete. We talked about in 1 Corinthians 7 that you may be called to singleness if you're one in 100,000 Christians. And uh, if you, if you uh, are called to singleness, this verse doesn't imply that you have to get married. It's okay to be single, Paul says. Paul himself was single. But uh, he's saying here that um, uh, creation is incomplete without woman. And uh, most Christians desire and would say they don't have a calling to be single. So the point is, in, in, in we ask ourselves this question as we read through this, and we're looking already, and it's this, the text is just kind of crying out to us that there is someone taking leadership here already. I mean, who was created first? Who needed a helper suitable for him? Who was given a warning? Who specifically was warned not to eat of a certain tree in the garden? It was Adam. Therefore, who would have been responsible to tell the woman that there was a tree to avoid? It was Adam. So the point is, we have this picture of responsibility and leadership from an early time in the Scripture. Now let's look at Genesis 3. Genesis 3, verse 6. Genesis 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave it also to her husband with her, and he ate. Notice what verse 6 does not say. It does not say, she took from its fruit and ate, and he also took from its fruit and ate. Notice it again. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. 
So the first time we see female leadership, and you say, well, you might be pushing. I mean, come on, my wife gives me dinner all the time. It doesn't mean she's usurping my role. The point is he was with her. He was with her. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. He knew. He was responsible. He must have told her. And now she's saying, because the serpent deceived her, hey, let's do this. It becomes even clearer as we go on in this passage and we have the curses for the sin. Uh, Take a look at verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, because you've done what? Deceived the woman, right? Satan involved in this attack here. Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle. Goes on with the curses. Skip down to verse 17. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you. Singular. I commanded you, not you all, you singular. Saying, you shall not eat from it. So there's two reasons given to the man for the consequences. One, you have listened to the voice of your wife, and secondly, you have eaten from the tree about which I have commanded you. There's a level of responsibility here for which man is held accountable. And in fact, as we go throughout the scriptures, we find Continually that man was responsible here. Man, not as in mankind, but Adam. Romans 5 would be one of those places. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Romans 5.19, For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That one man was Adam identified in Romans 5, but by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous, that's Christ. And so Adam has had an influence on every human who is born because we are born sinners, and Christ has an influence on every repentant sinner who trusts in him as Lord because you are cleansed through Christ. Adam was responsible for sin entering this world. This is huge. Headship means men. Headship in the home means if your, if your wife is not living like she should, and if Jesus were to knock on your door, the door of your house, he would ask for you first. Adam was the head. Having considered those foundational and historic passages, I, I think we have enough of a background to see that there is a thread of headship that has been from the creation. We could go through, we could spend our whole time going through various passages and seeing headship uh, in the family, in the church, and in society. But I think we're going to stop and we're going to define it now. We've, we've looked at historical exploration. Let's go through our second goal, which is to de- a definition. Definition. Uh, and before I define it, I want to ask a question. What is the opposite of male headship? 
You don't have to answer it. It's rhetorical. You're probably going to be wrong anyways. What is the opposite of male headship? Wrong! But thanks for saying it boldly. Uh, technically, I mean, opposite isn't the right word. A better way to uh, phrase the question is, what is the antithesis of male headship? What is completely diametrically opposed to male headship? And the answer is male domination. Yes, I know. I know that was your second answer. Male domination. Ray Ortland wrote a chapter in Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. He says this, The antithesis of male headship is male domination. By male domination, I mean the assertion of the man's will over the woman's will, heedless of her spiritual equality, her rights, and her value. So male headship does not mean, before we define it, let's talk about what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that women are in any way spiritually unequal to men. It doesn't mean that God has gifted fewer rights to women than he has to men. It doesn't mean that somehow intrinsically women are worth less than men are, or on the playground, as is so often said, boys are better than girls. That's not what it means. Also, male headship has nothing to do with the notion that any man should be able to just pick out any woman and tell her what to do or how to behave based on the fact that he is a man and she is merely a woman. That is not male headship. Rather, here's the definition for male headship. Men are primarily responsible to lead in a God-glorifying direction. Men are primarily responsible to lead in a God-glorifying direction. Adam was responsible to lead in a God-glorifying direction. That doesn't mean that women who sin won't be held accountable, but men are primarily primarily responsible to lead in a God-glorifying direction, and men will be held accountable if they do not lead in that manner. In the church, men are primarily responsible to, before God to lead in a godly manner. In marriage, men are primarily responsible to lead in a godly manner. If you have a bunch of teenagers getting into trouble, boys and girls, those boys are primarily responsible to lead in a God-glorifying manner. This is why if a husband says to his wife, you must submit to me because I am your, finish it, husband, right? You got that back and forth? If he says that, he fails. He yields little fruit. Why? Because his words reek of male domination, not male headship. Male headship says, I will lead you in a godly manner, and I will patiently wait for you to follow. This is why in our society today, we look down upon men 
who treat women as objects. This is why they are so repulsive to us, because they, those men, have bought, bought into the satanic lie that men are better than women and that male domination is proper, and therefore the idol in their heart is that somehow they have the right to dominate women. Question. So the question is, yeah, the, the question is, if I'm understanding you correctly, is we're talking about God-honoring responsibilities of man in society. What if men don't provide any leadership or any God-honoring quality? What are women to do, right? Oh, yeah, could be bad. Could be bad. Agreed, agreed. And, and, and we've seen this. I mean, you, you see it in the church. I've been to churches in Zimbabwe. Shortly after the war ended, the war ended sometime in the mid-80s, I was there in uh, the 90s, and I visited churches in Zimbabwe that had no men. I visited, been asked to preach, and I've noticed in the congregation, not one man. Why? Because men will abandon their responsibility, and women were there, and what happens is if women then take on a role that's not theirs and they start to lead the church because the men are not willing, the men are happy to sit back and say, okay, let it be a women and children's organization. So one of the challenges in the church is that if men are failing to lead, that the women are to be, remain silent and are to wait. Just because the men drop the ball doesn't mean the women should go out on the court and say, okay, you guys are really making a mess of this. Give me the ball. We'll put it in the hoop. Come on now. This is just not the way of creation. This is not the way God designed creation. I'm not saying it's easy, but we have different roles and different responsibilities, and together they are harmonious and they are beautiful, and they have certain God-given reasons and results. But um, so we have this... This, this picture. This, this is why also feminism is so incompatible with Christianity. Feminism is incompatible with Christianity because feminism, for the most part, seeks to revolt against male domination. But female domination is not the solution, nor is gender equality in every area of society. The solution to twisted forms of domination and equality is what God designed in the first place, and that is male headship. And by that, I mean that men have the responsibility to lead with God-glorifying behavior, attitudes in a God-glorifying manner. That is what I mean by male headship. I don't want to confuse it with male domination, because we will never understand this passage if we're thinking of male domination as opposed to male headship established in verse 3. So we've seen the examination of history. We've seen the definition. Let's turn to the exposition, and let's look at verses 4 through 6 and see how that goes. Verses 4 through 6 is um, the second desire in our overall theme here, and that is 
If you, if you said I didn't get the first desire, that's because it was last week. Last week was to know about headship, verses 2 and 3. The second desire for Paul that Paul had for the church in Corinth is that they would apply headship, verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6 says this, Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head covered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one of the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head... Let her also have her hair cut off, but if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. We already explained the word head last week, and the word head here we take to mean either metaphorically as authority or literally as someone's head, okay? As, as, as uh, yeah, the upper extremity, the, the part above your neck, Right? That's your head. And so sometimes we have a literal head. For example, um, uh, verse 4, every man who has something on his head, okay, his literal head, while praying or prophesying, disgraces his head. That's metaphorical. Could also be literal, but it's, it, it's, it's Christ. Christ is his head. Because in the previous verse, it says that Christ is the head of every man. But when we're looking at the application, verses 4 through 6, the application, really, we have two reasons why Christians should avoid confusing the roles between men and women. And the first one is male misrepresentation of headship dishonors Christ. When males, when men misrepresent the headship that they have, they dishonor Christ. And our text just says that, verse 4, every man who has something on his head disgraces his head who is Christ. And that happens while he's praying or he's prophesying. Let's talk about praying or prophesying because I think we need to talk about these terms. We, we use prayer quite frequently. I think most of us know what prayer is, right? Prayer is when we speak to God about other people. We're not necessarily in church. You can pray in church. We have prayed in church. This morning we prayed in church. But you can pray at home. You should be praying at home. You, you, should, you can pray all the time. You can pray without ceasing. You can, you can nearly get in an accident when somebody swoops in to cut in front of you on, uh, on Roscoe Boulevard at the exit, and, and you, could, you can say, Lord, thank you that he didn't take out my fender, right? And you can, and you can have deep moments of prayer. You can have times where you're in, aid, in, 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 in agony just going through a huge trial and spend hours in prayer. We pray. We pray asking him for help, for wisdom, for peace, for strength. I think we know what prayer is. Um, prophecy, if, if prayer is speaking to God about people, prophecy is simply speaking to people about God, not necessarily doing it in the church. You can prophesy in the church, but you can prophesy to your neighbor. Um, there are many different kinds of prophecy. When we think of prophecy, we think of sort of like the future, Right? We think of foretelling the future. But the word prophecy is used in the Old Testament, and the prophets did not merely tell the future. They spoke on behalf of God. They spoke forth the word of God. And therefore, prophecy is better defined as forthtelling rather than foretelling, speaking forth God's word, forthtelling. Um, a prophet in the Old Testament spoke to people with words of warning, words of wisdom, words of encouragement and words also about the future. So foretelling would be a subcategory of the general uh, term prophecy. And so if I were to preach, 
on 1 Thessalonians 4 and we're talking about the rapture, that would be prophetic material that is being preached. You were hearing prophecy from God's word. If your neighbor comes to you and you're washing your cars or mowing the lawns and you stop and take a break and you're talking to your neighbor, he says, I'm really concerned about global warming. And you say, why? He says, well, because the earth is getting hotter. Well, why is that a concern? Well, because the polar ice caps will melt and then we'll be flooded. And maybe the whole earth will be covered. And you say, no, no, no. The Bible says that uh, the earth will never be flooded again. Remember, God did that with Noah and the rainbow. That's a symbol to us of his promise. We can rest in that. That's prophecy. He says, well, okay, maybe that won't happen, but maybe we'll just gradually, like a slow egg, just fry and we'll all die. Right? And you say, oh, that's not going to happen either. Well, how do you know? Well, the Bible tells us that one day Jesus Christ will return, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And that all believers in him, all those who are true, truly genuine followers of Christ, who have repented of their sins and trusted in him as their Lord and Master, whose sins have been paid for, who are seen as righteous by God, not by their own merit, but by the work of Christ on the cross, and they've trusted in that work to wash them clean, those saints, along with those who have already died who believed in Christ, will be raised up together and caught up into the air with him. It's called the rapture. And then there'll be seven terrible years of tribulation, written about in the book of uh, Revelation from chapter 6 through 19. And then and there'll be terrible events that happen there in that time. And during that time, there'll be an antichrist and an uprising. And, and then God will come down on a white horse, and he will have a battle called Armageddon. The Bible speaks about this. And, and he will win that battle. He will have victory over that battle. And Satan will be bound for a thousand years, and Christ will rule on this earth. It's what the Bible teaches, Revelation chapter 20. You should read the whole chapter. It's really informative. Uh, Christ will rule here for a thousand years, and at the end of that time, Satan will be released for a short time, and he'll roam around the world, and, uh, and he'll call, stir up people again. And there will be a, another time where all those who are faithful to Christ will be around the holy city, which is Jerusalem, and they will be, they will be surrounded by people who are against Christ again. And then Revelation 20 verse 9 says that fire will come down from heaven and consume them, and, ta- and, and they will be destroyed and dead. And then there will be a judgment of all the dead called the great white throne judgment. It's still Revelation chapter 20. And then chapter 21 We have a new heaven and a new earth coming out of heaven, and that's how the world ends. That's prophecy. You're prophesying to your neighbor. So you say, you don't have to worry about, you know, a gradual heating up. It's going to happen much more rapidly, and it's not going to be quite as global as you think, but it's going to be fire coming down from heaven, and those who are against our master will be destroyed. That's global warming, if you want to use that term. You should be afraid of it, but the answer is not to put away your hairspray can or not put a Chevy 454 into your vehicle. Although I'm not for like spilling oil just for the sake of it. I'm just saying that that the answer is to repent of your sins and trust in Christ because he's your only hope and the world is going to end and you're right to be concerned about that. And I, we have God's word and you can choose to believe ABC News or you can choose to believe God's word, which choose you this day whom you will serve. i got to wash my car now. (laughs) That's prophecy. It happened throughout Scripture. 
Uh, Acts chapter 18, you have Priscilla and Aquila with Apollos. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. That's a prophetic ministry. You have Luke 2.36, when Joseph and Mary brought their baby Jesus to the temple, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow, to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving day and night with fasting and prayers. And at the very moment, Luke 2.38, at the very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. What does a prophetess do in the first century in the temple? She thanks God publicly. And she tells everybody about God and redemption. That's what a prophet did, a prophetess. So whenever it's appropriate, I think people get caught up because they look at this passage and they say, well, this is women teaching in the church. Well, the passage nowhere here says that it's in a worship service or that it's in the church. This is women from the church. These are women who are believers But there's no location here. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, we'll see when we get there, it talks about the roles of men and women in a church service. And preaching and teaching is not part of that. But we'll get to that. But right now, we're talking about headship. There's a phrase here, head covered. Head covered. Again, verse 4, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying. That that word, uh, and then it says, uh, every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying. It's a hard, it's a hard uh, phrase to translate because uh, the phrase literally is translated having down from the head, having down from the head. It's not the word head with the word cover. We translate it that way in English to try and make sense, but the literal translation is having down from the head. So we look at this and say, well, what is having down from the head? And some have said, well, it's hair. Hair comes down from the head. And so that's obviously, and in fact, in verse 15, it says her hair has been given to her as a covering. So hair must be the covering. I, I'm not sure about that. I, I, I think it's, it has, uh, one, of, one of the problems with that view is take a look at verse 6. It says in verse 6, if a woman does not cover her head, so automatically if hair has been given as a covering, we're saying a woman doesn't have any hair. Right? If she has no hair, for a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. Well, how do you cut off her hair if she doesn't have any hair? It's a long process. Wait for it to grow back and then get the clippers out? I, I, don't, I don't... So I'm saying that there are issues to me. Some, some believe this. They write about this. I, I, don't, I, don't, I think it's more than hair, okay? I think it's something different than hair. Um, and in verse 4, Paul's point is if a man has his head covered, it's dishonorable, and I think he's talking about an actual covering, some sort of veil or some sort of uh, sheet or something that he put over his head while praying. And, and I think that the application was specifically for the culture of Greek, of, of Greek culture in Corinth. There was something in this about a man covering his head while he's praying or prophesied that confused his role as a man. Somehow it made him look feminine. Somehow it confused the role which he, were to, which he was to play out. And somehow it dishonored his head, who is Christ. The second reason why a Christian should avoid 
confusing roles when we look up at the application of male headship, and that is female misrepresentation of headship dishonors men. So the female, women also misrepresent headship when they pray with their head uncovered, when they don't have their shawl or their veil or their prayer cloth over their head while they're praying or prophesied. Somehow it's a dis, it, it dishonors their head, who is man, and the man's head, who is Christ. Verse 5, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesied disgraces her head. So just like a man who dresses like a woman and dishonors her head, a woman who rebels against God and God's design for male headship disgraces her head. So offensive was this idea that at the end of verse 5 and end of verse 6, it says, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. In other words, if a woman wants to blur the distinctions between men and women and somehow she's going to go around without a head covering and in Corinth where that society would have said, She's acting like a man because her head's not covered, and she's speaking the things of Lord. It's not fitting for her, and somehow it disgraces her and, uh, and men and male headship and Christ. And so people are wondering, well, why does she act like that? And we know that the Talmud in, in, indicates that Jewish women were considered to be ugly or outcast when they have a shaved head. Chrysostom records that women guilty of adultery had their heads shaved off, their heads, not their heads off, but the hair shaved, shaved off, sorry, um, to be marked as prostitutes. It was a sign of prostitution, adultery, and it seems as though some women in ancient Corinth were trying to uh, speak out against feminism or speak, speak for feminism against male domination and somehow having the appearance of we're not going to honor our culture around us. And so you may think that women's liberation began in the 70s, or you may think maybe it was related to the women's suffrage movement of the mid-1800s, but, but actually Paul wrote to the women in Corinth who were demanding the same treatment as men regarding marriage. They regarded marriage and raising children as unimportant tasks. Sometimes Some of them left their husbands to, to claim independent, try and find independence. And we see this passage that some... Of these women in the first century wanted to burn their veils, right? This was the the culture. And Paul is writing saying, don't be like that in the church. We're going to get to more uh, next week, but I wanted to save at least five minutes here at the end. We've looked at a uh, historical examination We have a definition, that is, men are primarily responsible to lead in a God-glorifying direction. We have an exposition. We've looked at verses 4 through 6 and how that applies to male headship. So what are the implications? How today do you apply this for women and men in the church? Anyone? What do we walk away with here? Yes. Right, so leading by example for the husband, obviously, and for men in general in society, making, being responsible, we are going to live God-glorifying lives because we are men, and God calls us to this as men. 
because he called Adam as a leader, and we're related to Adam, and so we're going to look after women and make sure that we're not leading them astray or causing them to stumble and that we're caring for them in that way. Yes, but something about your appearance signifies in society. And I couldn't come up with a better idea than, than this, and I don't know, maybe there's a, a married woman here in Steadfast, and one day she, she wakes up and she decides to um, not wear what she would normally wear to Grace Church, but she decides to wear short shorts, you know, the kinds of jeans with the pockets that hang lower than the, the actual cutoff, and, and, and uh, she wears maybe like a half shirt and a belly ring, and uh, again, do you have freedom to wear short shorts? I think so. I mean, you have freedom to wear a half shirt, if you can. Um, if you, you know, uh, <laughs> the, you know, and, let, and let's say she, she, uh, she cuts her hair all punk rock and ostentatious and she, and she uh, comes to church and her t-shirt says National Organization of Women and she says, please don't use my married name, I'm going by my, ma- by my maiden name again. And uh, she, you know, is, is instead of like hanging out with her family, she's going to foundation on Friday nights and, you know, I mean, I mean... Listen, I'm all for foundation, right? <laughs> Do you have the freedom to go there? But if you're doing all that and you're using this freedom, by the way, Paul's just finished a lengthy section about abusing your freedom. If you're doing that by your appearance and people are looking at you and saying, how does her life really match up with the gospel? I think we need to be about everything we can be about men recognizing and caring for women and leading, being leaders in society, even with our appearance. And the same women should support that with their appearance. So there are many other applications you can have, and I hope we can see those next week as we come back to this section. But I think to answer that question, that would be one way you could answer the question, How do we apply this to our lives? Everything about us, not only our hearts, but our exterior, we are are prizing and praising our God for his design of creation with a, a harmony of differences and different roles that we play together as man and woman in a God glorifying way. So that when people come to Grace Church, they say, there's just something here about the way they look, about the way, it's not like a JCPenney catalog, it's not, it's not that. It's like, it's like the way that they actually care about one another and it exudes everything about them. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we've had to look at these few verses that are an application of a principle which our society has lost. Help us to be light and salt in this world and bring back truths which have been here since creation and present them to the world in such a way that we're not seen as holier than thou or condescending, but humbly prizing behavior, attitudes, and appearances that glorify your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.